A quick note before we start. It's important to keep in mind that sometimes houses that appear to be abandoned may not actually be abandoned, and their owners may be experiencing circumstances that we don't know about. Please always exercise caution, not just for your own safety, but for the respect of others. These buildings and these spaces represent the history of this country, where we've been, where we are, and where we are headed, and the things that we have done to each other. Blake File is the host of Abandoned, the All-American Ruins podcast, a multimedia travel log where this artist, activist, adventurer, and self-proclaimed loudmouth recounts his experiences exploring abandoned spaces across the United States, and he takes the listener along for the journey. He asks critical questions about our history and culture, about community, capitalism, the environment, and mental health, while encouraging people to activate their imaginations as a tool for healing. As an abandoned building obsessive myself, I had the best possible time talking to this kind, wise weirdo. A new true twin flame for me, for sure. Together, we ask questions about what our deep love of these American ruins means, how it all relates to queerness, to addiction and recovery, to politics and capitalism. And we discuss how these spaces can help us recultivate the empathy we need in order to find a vital solidarity. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, And this is American Hysteria. Hey, Blake. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about probably my favorite topic in the world, abandoned things. Oh, Chelsea, I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting to me because I agree it's my favorite thing to talk about. I know. And there are there are many of us, but few at the same time who mm-hmm. really, truly not only appreciate the aesthetic of abandoned things, but actually want to get in there and get our hands dirty and like sift through old closets to see like the artifacts of people who lived before. Mm-hmm. So I just want to start with kind of a simple question. And that would be, how did you get into exploring abandoned buildings? It is a loaded question, and I love when people ask because it's an opportunity for me to talk about my childhood, which I love talking about because I was born and raised in Colorado, and I'm very proud to call Colorado my home. I was born and raised in the mountains, uh, the foothills rather, of the Rockies in Colorado Springs, and right down the hill from my house when I was a kid was this beautiful abandoned dairy farm that was originally erected as part of the modern Woodman of America tuberculosis sanatorium. Back in the early 1900s, these sanatoriums were popping up all over the country, specifically in Colorado Springs and all over the state of Colorado, because at the time, the science suggested that the climate of that particular state, especially on the Front Range, was the best to treat tuberculosis. Wow. So they erected hundreds of sanatoriums all over the country based on the model of these 
European spas where folks would come for long periods of time to get well. And this dairy farm specifically was abandoned by 1980. The property had been sold over to the Sisters of St. Francis of Assisi, which is a sect of the Catholic Church. So it became a nunnery and a nursing home for nuns. And the rest of the property, which kind of expands all over this very strange neighborhood that I grew up in, there were buildings that dotted the landscape that still existed. And this dairy farm was one of them. And when I was about six years old, my father took my brother and I down to explore the area around this dairy farm. And I remember looking specifically at this one spot on the farmhouse. And, you know, this is in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains, so it was very picturesque. And it was already a space where my imagination was instigated naturally just because of the the landscape. But on the backdrop of these Rocky Mountains, I could see this farmhouse and there was this spot that I could tell was a little entrance that I don't think anybody else would notice. And so I went back the following day figured out how to get into this farmhouse part of this larger property. And the second I stood up, I felt like I had been there before. Everything came flooding back to me, like these memories that weren't mine. It was it was a nostalgia for something that wasn't my own. I don't think I knew that that was the feeling at the time. I just knew that I felt really good and that I wanted to be there. And so this dairy farm became my secret private sanctuary where I would go on the weekends after, you know, when we weren't in school and I would spend hours in there talking to ghosts and playing pretend and running my fingers along the walls. And as you said, touching the clothes in the closet and putting dishes on the table and playing pretend with my friends. And it was a healing space for me. And again, I don't think I knew that at the time, but that was the genesis of what wound up becoming this lifelong obsession with decay and ruins. I feel like we are like twin flames <laughs> because it's yeah that that feeling that you're talking about is so familiar to me and um in my own kind of youth growing up same thing my dad uh would take us exploring in abandoned buildings and uh and I think that and maybe you experienced this but like the feeling of like a parent sanctioning you doing something that is against the law like the thrill of being like a able to break those rules but have the backing of a parent is like such a just like a freedom I don't know how to describe exactly but you know we'd go to these old army bunkers which you were allowed to go to but um, you know we get to like shoot off fireworks or we'd get to spray paint things and then he would um, just kind of like let us do whatever we wanted all the time so there were um, these abandoned houses down the street from my adopted brother's house and we we would just, you know, just go in there by ourselves, 10, 11 years old, and just look through everything, right? I, that was what I really loved was the minutia, like the ephemera left behind, which mm-hmm. you don't always find in buildings, right? Sometimes they're just shells of themselves, which is cool. But sometimes you step into an abandoned place that actually has, like, artifacts that have been untouched for a period of time. Like I found boxes of pictures or boxes of kids artwork or stories that they wrote. And um, that always stuck with me too in that feeling you had of like having memories you don't have or like collecting ghosts or something like Mm -hmm. that. Right. And this is what I want to, you know, sort of posit to people is this idea that When a person passes through a space and they spend time there and they live a life there, 
There is, a, and I, I really believe that there's scientific evidence to prove this. They leave something behind. You can call it an energy. You can call it electrons. You can call it whatever you want to call it. But something is left behind, and it is impressed onto the space. And depending on the state of decay, there are stories that live in those walls, and there are stories that live in those artifacts that you mentioned. And it does create a semblance of nostalgia. And though it isn't your own personal nostalgia, I do think there are a lot of us, like you mentioned, we're twins here in this regard. And I think there are a lot of us who maybe have tapped into that feeling a number of times when we go out in search of these spaces. And I think it's very attractive. And I think that the reason, particularly for me, that it's so attractive is it instigates my imagination in a way that is far past creativity and wonderment, but it instigates my imagination as a space of healing Mm -hmm. and comfort and safety and serenity. And I think right now, especially, we're living in a pretty precarious moment on a human timeline, the timeline of human history. And so any chance I get to be able to find reprieve from the day to day, you bet I'm going to do it. And these spaces provide that solace for me. Do you think part of that feeling comes from the adrenaline of being in a space because we've kind of talked about like the piece Mm. of it but I think the risk element is also a big part of why I was so attracted to this experience absolutely and let me preface this by saying I'm not certain I believe in astrology but I certainly experience astrology and I have four planets in Sagittarius and that is what makes me the rule bender that I am, somebody who finds rules to be malleable. And then there's another piece of this that's a little bit darker, and I don't mind getting personal here Mm -hmm. for a moment. You know, there is also the addict in me. Um, I've been in recovery for almost 10 years, and there is a very uh, dark side to my personality that doesn't like rules and will do whatever I can to break them. And so I think, like you're saying, exactly that's it. These are a safe way for me to be able to exercise that natural feeling of Mm. rebellion without causing any harm. And that's, that's the beautiful thing about these spaces. And I think a lot of people may disagree who aren't in the urbex community that this is not causing harm in any capacity. If anything, it's keeping me from doing things like picking up again. It's keeping me from doing things like going back and like rifling through people's, you know, medicine cabinets. And I've always been very open about this piece of my life because I think there are a lot of other people who identify with that. And I think the more that we talk about and normalize this particular theme of the mental health crisis that we find ourselves in as a planet, the better. And what a better way to do that than through the lens of these (laughs) just stunning abandoned spaces that keep me from getting into trouble while definitely pushing me into getting into trouble. (laughs) Oh, man, I love uh, Yeah, I love that. And uh, I can absolutely relate to everything you're saying. And, you know, as someone who started out in my late teens as a hitchhiker, too, it feels like there's some similarities there where you're like born kind of a risk taker, kind of an adrenaline junkie. And that that then translates in some way to your adult personality Mm -hmm. and that can take on a lot of different forms as you're talking about. And I have this theory kind of that like kids that grew up kind of obsessed with fireworks (laughs) are going to 
go on to have some issues with drugs. That's my theory. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting over here. You can't see the big smile that I have. On, you know, it's we're recording an interview, so I'm doing my best to withhold the laughter. But I've, I've got a big beam on my face, just Good. so you know, because I totally agree. If you're a fire worker at age four, you're you're, you're bound yeah. to get into a little bit of trouble. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You're fucked. Um, so, OK, that, that's great. So in addition to serving this purpose for you of helping you stay on the straight and narrow path, um, what does it do for you on like a deep, like emotional, almost spiritual level? Because it feels like I don't have a set spirituality in my life, but it feels like if I did, this would be part of my Bible or something would be the experience of going into an abandoned building. I think that's so beautiful. And I will say that, you know, the past three years have been a pretty revolutionary moment for me. I picked up this hobby of exploring abandoned spaces at a very young age. And then my parents got divorced and we moved and I forgot about it. And then in high school, there was this abandoned house that I was turned on to and I brought friends there and we had a good time there, but I never really picked it up again. I was always curious. It's so funny. I was going back through old Facebook photo albums from like 2006. And there are just swaths of albums where I have I had taken photographs of abandoned buildings that I had forgotten I had even explored in the first place. So this has always been a theme in my life. And I think the reason I mention the past three years as being this revolutionary moment is because it wasn't just a moment for me, and I think a lot of people, to be with myself and learn how to be with myself resolutely, wholly, fundamentally as much as I could, but also to learn to love myself in that space. And I hadn't done that. And so coupled with or rediscovering this beautiful practice of exploring you know, the unseen markers of the world, there was also, like I mentioned, the piece of this that was the sobriety of it all. Now, I stopped drinking in 2013. I stopped doing drugs in 2013. And at the same time, just because I had stopped doing those things and putting them into my body, I wasn't leading a sober lifestyle. It's what we call a dry drunk. And I was still behaving in the ways that I would when I was drinking or doing drugs. And until the pandemic started, I was in that headspace. And then I was forced to be inside my with myself and reckon with a lot of the things I had yet to be rigorously honest about when it came to who I was and what I have to offer and the things that I was holding on to that weren't serving me anymore. And what's so interesting is at the same time that I discovered or rather rediscovered the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was also discovering these abandoned spaces. And, you know, I, I have to preface all of this also by saying Alcoholics Anonymous is not for everybody and it is a program of attraction, not promotion. And so I talk about it very freely because it's it has been the thing that saved my life, but I know that it doesn't work for everybody. And I'm very, very comfortable making sure that I mention that because I don't want to turn people off. But I do talk about it a lot because um, it saved my life. Just to interrupt you for one second to create a safe space, I was a codependence anonymous person for several years. So I, too, have a 12-step process in my blood <laughs> Thank you. Um, and feel the same way you Thank do, you. but just in the context of our conversation, yes. No, I, I appreciate that very much. And it's it's always nice to meet another 12-stepper because I do think that we understand this very simple uh, guidebook for life. You know, I remember growing up and always, you know, wondering is why isn't there like a guidebook for life? And actually there is. And for me, it's the 12 steps. And so, 
You know what I mean? And and in those 12 steps, there is the 11th step, which is seeking through prayer and meditation, conscious contact with a higher power. Now, that is a, a, what they call a God of your understanding. So they don't put a, a definitive sect or denomination on this thing that's bigger than you. It's just a way to mm-hmm. recognize that you are a mere mortal. You are a person who exists for a finite amount of time. You're not the center of the universe. You're certainly not God. And you're not here for that long. And so with that spiritual component, as I was re-emerging in the rooms of AA, I was simultaneously starting to re-enter these abandoned spaces. And it became a natural reconnection for me, this reconnection to a spiritual space, because I do believe in something bigger than myself. I don't know if it has a name, but I've certainly witnessed it time after time in these abandoned spaces. And for me, it is this idea that the imagination is far more capable of doing far more things than I think we give it credit for. I think it is a portal into a spiritual realm where possibilities are actually endless. And I think that is the piece of it that is so astounding to me that does become the spiritual piece of of it. Because, you know, we think about the course of human history and how people over the course of human history, beautiful people with huge brains, you know, the first thing they did before they made the thing that was cool was dream big. They dove into their imagination and they thought this must be possible and they dreamed it and they imagined it and then it became a reality. And so I think that to answer your question, this is a long-winded answer to that question. <laughs> they absolutely serve as a spiritual space and they they serve as that because for whatever reason, they instigate my imagination and it opens up this world that is healing that is safe and that is secure and right now as i mentioned i think we're in a very very dangerous moment in human history and i think specifically in this country and as a side note i think these spaces represent a lot of the issues that we're facing as a country but when i go into these spaces what's so fascinating and funny to me and i've talked about this with my uncle who is an architect and expressed deep concern that i was going into these you know dilapidated (laughs) buildings i said you know Uncle Reed, what's hilarious is I feel safer in these places than anywhere else on the planet because I can be myself 110%. I don't feel like that anywhere else. I can be the kid who I always was meant to be, but the culture we live in says you can't act like a quote-unquote kid. The culture says don't play pretend. The culture says you have to grow up. And I totally agree with that. Like, I'm not one of these people who's like, you know, spouting off Jam Barry and being like, I'm Peter Pan, the boy who... No, 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 I'm not... I was going to say, you're no Peter Pan. No, I, and I can't stand that because there is a sense of uh, a disconnect from reality. And as an addict who is in recovery, my go-to is escaping reality. And so... If I can do that in a safe way that isn't compromising my uh, sobriety and isn't compromising my rigorous honesty, then that is Mm -hmm. the choice I make. And it is spiritual because it is a realm that I can't find anywhere else but in those spaces. Mm. Loved it. Oh, beautiful. More after this. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R, 
Welcome to the Magical Overthinkers podcast, a show for thought spiralers, exploring the subjects we can't stop overthinking about, from celebrity worship to social media comparison. I'm your host, Amanda Montel. I am a textbook overthinker. I'm also an author and the host of the podcast Sounds Like a Cult. Every other Wednesday on the Magical Overthinkers podcast, I'll interview a charismatic expert guest about some confounding subject from the zeitgeist. Think narcissism, imposter syndrome, girl math. If you're like me and feel like the volume in your brain is just way too high sometimes, my hope is for this show to make some sense of the senseless. Listen to Magical Overthinkers now, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. I think the the idea of the spiritual safe place is a really cool thing because I think even growing up, you know, I think both of us, I, I'm making an assumption about you, but grew up as queer people and potentially hiding that part of ourselves um, and potentially not having that be a thrilling thing for some of those people in our lives and trying to find places that, that resonated in some way and felt safe and apart. And like you, we had a, a sanatorium in our town. <laughs> that was abandoned and it actually became oh god it was so you would have loved it it was like three stories huge wooden building in the shape of an h and was just it had been made into some kind of rehab center or something like that so it was just full of like files that definitely shouldn't have been left in there and just strange tools and strange medical equipment which of course is like very creepy <laughs> to find in an abandoned building but we would just go up on the top floor and hang out in one of those rooms for hours and hours and that was just like kind of our clubhouse and it felt exactly like you said like nobody's coming in here I mean we can be scared that somebody is but probably nobody's coming in here and this is our club it's our special place and it leads me to wonder about this but I haven't fully articulated it to myself but I feel like there is some connection between queerness and a desire to go into these spaces, whether it's just because you and I are talking right now, I'm not sure. But I was just interested if you had ever thought about how those two things can relate to each other. Oh, Chelsea, this has been top of mind for me (laughs) very recently. And I think it is so apropos you bring it up because, yes, absolutely. This is... This is a a topic that I actually don't think has been explored a lot yet. And so maybe you and I can have a a deeper conversation specifically about this at at another time um, or co-write something together, because I, I do think this is a piece of the urbex community that has yet to be explored. Now, a couple weeks ago, I had the just the deep privilege of interviewing one of the preeminent photographers in the urbex community and that space. Her name is Marissa Scheinfeld, and she is the person who you may have seen online who's responsible for these now and then photos at all of these abandoned resorts in the Catskill Mountains. So... I'm going to take you back in time a little bit here. In the 1920s and 30s, there was a wave of rampant anti-Semitism that just shot through this country. And 
you know, the the Nazi regime in Germany actually had secret agents in this country who were all over the place building these insular Nazi communities so that when Hitler believed he would win the war, they would have an easy way to transition into taking over this country. And so this is this is documented history. The, um, there's a great podcast about it if you're interested. It's Rachel Maddow's Ultra. It came out last year. It is one of the most phenomenal pieces of American history I've ever heard in the audio story telling space. But I I digress. In the 1920s and 30s, because of this wave of anti-Semitism, Jewish people were barred access from many different spots in the country, places to get their haircut, places to uh, find groceries, places to vacation. And so what they did was they said, well, you know what, to hell with you. If we're not welcome in your space, then we are going to create spaces of our own. And so in the Catskill Mountains, they started to build hundreds of resorts that extended all the way up through the the beauty of that very mystical mountain range. And it became a safe haven for Jewish people. Now, subsequently, these spaces um, began to represent what inspired the Green Book in the South, where people of color had this guidebook where they knew all of the different places where they were safe and they weren't going to be harmed. That was inspired by these folks um, in the Borscht Belt. At the same time, in addition to these Jewish communities, all of these other communities who were subject to hate and ridicule started finding their own safe spaces, not just in the Catskills, but in the Poconos, down in the Smoky Mountains. And one of the biggest populations of those people were queer groups, mm. quote unquote, cross-dressers, what, you know, as they referred to them yeah, at the time, or transvestites, as they referred to them at the time. Trans people, queer people, gay people, lesbians, bisexuals, they created all of these little insular vacation communities because, as Marissa said, fine, if you don't want us in your places, to hell with you, we're going to go make our own. And so I think that that is like a very specific connection to what you're saying. But on the broader scope, it's kind of like the, the horror movie genre. I am deeply drawn to horror movies, and I always have been. I was obsessed with Alfred Hitchcock as a kid. And I think it's because I could see these monsters on screen who were misunderstood or um, had their stories misrepresented. And I think there's something as queer people and you know i'm not i don't want to speak for you but i think what you're saying is that these spaces are sort of synonymous and maybe personify the queer experience in a way because they're also misunderstood it's by and large likely so when i drove through allentown pennsylvania towards the beginning of the pandemic i was deeply attentive to every single abandoned building that we whizzed by on the highway I'm going to go ahead and guarantee you that 99% of humanity is not paying attention to these buildings the way that I paid Mm -hmm. attention to them. And so there was that uniqueness that I was able to identify. And I think it's like you're saying, as queer people, we are outliers. These buildings are outliers. They don't exist in the public eye anymore. People want to treat them like they're invisible and are so quick to want to knock them down because, quote unquote, they're an eyesore. And so I think there's something there, Chelsea, and I fully agree with you. And I love that you brought it up because this has been very top (laughs) of mind for me, especially because, again, we're in this really troubling moment that is dangerous. And we've seen over 450 pieces of anti-trans legislation sweep the nation. Zoe Zephyr, the Montana state senator who has been barred from entering the chamber where she was elected to do her job, they are pulling out all the stops. And so for me, 
absolutely, I identify with these buildings on a number of levels, but the queer space, that is so prevalent and so real. And I can guarantee you there is a large percentage of urbex uh, explorers who are queer or deeply rooted in allyship. So yes, I agree with you. And I could talk about this for hours, honestly. (laughs) And we will, we will. Um, (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was yeah, that was a, a amazing answer and you're definitely like i think we're getting there i think we're starting to articulate this thing Mm -hmm. and um i also think that you know i mean on one hand like you said it's the haunted decrepit scary house at the top of the hill right it's like the thing that we fear but once we get inside of it it becomes like an enchanted and like loving space, which is, you know, again, weird, right? It's like, oh, covered in spray paint, everyone smashed everything. But you're like, no, this is, there's something very special and even safe here, which again, I don't know how to articulate exactly, but it does feel like the haunted house is the scapegoat of the community. We're not scared of like the, uh, we're not scared of the gated community, right? Where some of the worst and most terrifying things either happen or are planned to happen. Um, We're not scared of the beautiful, pristine places of of those who have benefited from capitalism, even though in a way those are the real haunted houses. And so it feels in a way like I can relate to to the way that this thing is viewed, but what its truth actually is as well. Maybe that's the title of the thing that you and I end up writing. Those are the real haunted houses. That Hell is such yeah. a beautiful way to look Hell at it. Yes, because <laughs> really, like I'm, I'm not at all comfortable walking into a gated community. I feel oh deeply out of place. I feel a little judgmental, to be honest with you, and it's just not for me. And I. I mean, my goodness gracious, you know, it's like the haunted house at the top of the hill, right? Like, that's a drag queen. I was terrified of drag queens for the longest time because I didn't understand them. It was my own internalized homophobia, queerphobia, transphobia that was woven into the fabric of who I am because of how I was raised. And the second I got closer to the drag queen and really started paying attention to what they were doing and what they were saying... It was like a whole world opened up that was so full of beauty and joy. And I think it's very representative in these spaces. I am so glad you brought this up because I do, and I, I don't mean to repeat myself over and over again, but I, I, I really think there's something um, to be explored here. And it's it's very interesting to me. Yeah, I would love to hear from listeners who have a similar experience or feeling too. Yes. Um, please, we, you know, maybe we need to start a poll here. <laughs> That'd be awesome, honestly. <laughs> I think this conversation also relates to the fact that both you and I are not um, very imposing figures. <laughs> we're, on, um, <laughs> we're like on the smaller side, you know, we're just these little <laughs> fancy pants queers, like, you know, tiptoeing <laughs> around this house. And I think that, you know, I, I, and I believe you're the same. I can go in an abandoned place by myself. And you know, I wouldn't necessarily do that unless I was feeling like, oh, this is, I don't have to fear that folks are using this to have a home for, you know, squatting or whatever you want to say. I don't want to disturb people that way either. Um, But going in spaces like in Bellingham, Washington, where I went to college, there were these huge abandoned factories, um, which, yeah, it was 
real special. And, you know, we like found a way in and you had to be really careful and you had to time it because the guard drove by, you know, at 4 p.m. sharp. And um, once you got in there, it was like you could go way up on the roof and you could like sleep up there under the stars. It was just like the most fantastic place. And I just I wasn't scared to go by myself. And I don't know. I mean, I also, again, not to (laughs) reiterate, but yeah, I used to hitchhike a lot, which feels to me they're like those two things are kind of married in some way. And um, I just Mm. I didn't have the fear that I feel that people think that I am supposed to have. And maybe that's the invincibility thing that comes with being a fireworks kid. I'm not sure. (laughs) But um, how do you navigate being, you know, someone who isn't probably strapped to the nines or like, you know, just someone who is uh, a non-imposing figure, a small person, a person who who otherwise may seem helpless inside the, the frightening haunted building? I love that question so much. And yes, thank you. I am five foot five and feeling fabulous. <laughs> I'm five four, so <laughs> great. Then we're we are twins. We'll stare into each other's eyes when we meet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah, I mean listen, I think a big part of it is because I am able to invent my own friends in these spaces. And I do it constantly. And that's a huge part of what my entire perspective on these ruins of America and really around the world has been over the past three years as I've been building the All-American Ruins multiverse, which is that inside these spaces, we've talked about this at length already, my imagination is unlocked and I am creating my own world. And it isn't scary to me. And I can be that fabulous diva that I want to be in these spaces. And I can talk to these people. And yeah, are they real? No, probably not. Is there something that we can scientifically boil down about, you know, how my imagination is creating these characters because of the trauma I've experienced? Sure, maybe we can probably, we could probably do that. We could probably track that. But why bother? Who cares? You know, if this is what works for me and it's been working for me and I'm not hurting anybody. And, you know, again, to go back to the queer thing that we were talking about, it's like, why do you care so much about what I do? Why, why do you care? Why are you so interested in my life? What are you not paying attention to in, in your life that causes you this desire to tell me how you think I should be leading my life? Even this past weekend, I went to this abandoned house that's across from this beautiful apple orchard here in the Hudson Valley. You know, it's not always safe to go in these spaces. There are incidents where I will walk in and my imagination will take a hard left turn instead of a right turn because something happens. I hear something or I see something on the wall or I see a bag in the corner and I think to myself, actually, you know what? Not today. This is not a welcoming space today, and I respect that. It's kind of like the city of Manhattan. There were days where I just didn't go out into the city because it wasn't ready for me. It did not want me there. And so I'm not going to argue with a a 13-mile island that's been sitting there (laughs) since the dawn of time. Like, who am I? And, And similarly, in these spaces, if I get a feeling in them, and it does happen every once in a while, that something's off, I'm out of there. And that just wasn't the space for me. But again, by and large, that's not really happening. It did happen this weekend. And I was very quick to leave. And then I went about my day. But yeah, it doesn't happen. And I could live in one of these spaces if I was afforded the opportunity. That's just not feasible. Right, right. So as you're making 
your show, Abandoned All-American Ruins. What else are you talking about in your show? Like, what are the themes that are going along with your explorations of these places? That's a great question. Uh, So we've got this foundation of imagination as a space of healing. And then on top of that, I think, and we mentioned it briefly earlier, these buildings and these spaces represent a lot of the history of this country, where we've been, where we are, and where we are headed. And I think they offer a unique perspective and an alternative interpretation of our culture and what we are about and and the things that we have done to each other. And this and this spreads over all different sects of society, the economy, the environment, social movements, the mental health crisis. This I mean the list goes on and housing injustice. And I th- I think that one of the things that has been so curious to me is looking at places and having them be a layer of interpretation on a story I've been told about this country that I didn't have before. There's this abandoned battery factory in a town called Huguenot, New York, that I explored in episode seven. And it's like an Aaron Brockovich fantasy that's like super (laughs) fun and full of intrigue. But the crux of that story is that this battery factory employed up to 600 people at one time in this small town. And it was the economy. It existed as the main source of money for this town. And then overnight, one night, the company picked up all the jobs and moved them down to Mexico. And overnight, an entire town's economy was decimated. And now there is the shell of this building sitting there. Not only has it been poisoning the environment and uh, become a super fun site, but it also represents this idea that 600 people lost everything overnight because one rich company decided that they wanted to make cuts so that they could reach a further bottom line. And so we're talking about greed, economic inequality, just the ability for these large corporations and billionaires to avoid paying their fair share of taxes. That's one example. There's another example. There's an abandoned factory up in uh, just outside of Albany, New York. That was the Alltech Steel Corporation, 16 building complex, massive sprawl. It is a super fun site. The owners of that plant, uh, and I explore that one in season six or episode six of season one. It's it's, it's actually a two part Aaron Brockovich fantasy. The first one takes place at Alltech. This is a, a designated Superfund site that was shut down because they were poisoning the groundwater, and the owners of the plant were never held responsible for it. And in fact, when they filed for bankruptcy, and when the government took over and declared eminent domain, nobody who was directly associated with the plant had to pay any kind of remediation to clean up the surrounding area. It was the taxpayer who was responsible for the $16.1 million cleanup that happened in the 90s. And so, again, this is environmental injustice. And how is it possible that a bunch of CEO bigwigs weren't held responsible, A, for poisoning the groundwater and possibly causing hundreds if not thousands of people in the surrounding areas to become sick but also how can you not be responsible for poisoning the planet itself it is unbelievable to me and so these are the kinds of things that i have been talking about with all american ruins and specifically in the podcast you know there is an abandoned psychiatric facility called letchworth village in uh, Thiels, new york and it was set up originally as an alternative method of psychiatric 
healthcare. And the idea was to create a town where people with all different kinds of psychiatric situations and diagnoses and mental illnesses could live and function the way that they would in real society. The problem is uh, there, there were massive problems there. It was a disgusting place. It wound up being the subject, actually, of a 1972 Peabody Award-winning piece that Geraldo Rivera produced <laughs> in the 70s. Sometimes he does good stuff. <laughs> he used to. Yeah, he used yes, to be yes. a, a real journalist. And he was. he was responsible for the uh, exposing these just unsanitary, just inhumane conditions that these patients at these kinds of institutions were were living in. And he it wound up getting the government and involved and they shut down a lot of these places at the expense of the patient and in episode nine uh, i explore that abandoned psychiatric facility and i wind up meeting an imaginary friend who guides me through the space his name is carl and as it turns out carl and i share a lot of the same mental illnesses and he walks me through the space and i reflect on the history of mental illness in this country where we've been where we are now, and where we're headed. And I think that the spaces really say quite a bit about the country. And it is my intention, in part, to create a new audio roadmap of the history of this country that explores the underbelly through these beautiful abandoned spaces. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it that I've been interested in, aside from uh, again, the foundation of imagination as healer, is I've been looking at my relationships in my life. Again, pandemic, a lot of time to reflect and be with myself. And I started realizing when I would explore different spaces with different people in my life, just how fortunate I am to have so many beautiful friendships and family members who do see me and do understand me. And so there is an episode coming up in the second season of the podcast that is about my relationship with my friend Shannon. And Shannon is somebody who, you know, we don't see eye to eye on everything, but the crux of our friendship is based in love and the ability to see one another and be honest with one another. And we were driving across the California desert and we passed by this abandoned gas station. And I asked her sheepishly if she wouldn't mind if we hooked back and gave me some time to explore it. And she herself wasn't interested in exploring Mm -hmm. it. She couldn't care less. But she was so down to take the time out of her day to let me go explore. And those are the kinds of relationships I'm exploring. I'm also exploring the ones that aren't serving me. Certain family members who have, because of things like a 2016 presidential election, have really turned a corner. And when I'm in these spaces, things naturally come up for me about my own life that spark my memory. You know, there's an abandoned drive-in movie theater and arcade, again, up in the Catskill Mountains that was abandoned in the early 2000s. And when I went there, I was immediately drawn into my relationship with my father. Mm. Because growing up, my father and I used to go to movies at drive-in movie theaters. And I have very fond memories with him in those movie theaters. But he's not the same person he used to be. Maybe he never was. And so those are the kinds of things that I'm exploring, especially in this upcoming season of the podcast. I really focused on myself in the first season and a lot of American topical themes. In season two, I'm starting to open up and introduce more characters, both imaginary and real life. So I'm excited because there's going to be a, a lot more. There's going to be new voices this, this season, and I'm, I'm super excited to bring them in. 
more after this. And now, back to the show. You kind of brought things right from the big picture to the personal. Um, and it reminded me of what I kind of mentioned earlier is like going into especially specifically an abandoned house, but it can happen all over. And the experience of getting to know the previous inhabitants, like, mm-hmm. for example, I have this deep memory of going into this local abandoned house in my childhood and finding not only a bottle of wine that we were like, this is probably aged great, (laughs) which it did not. Um, It tasted like pure vinegar. Um, Oh, that's amazing. um, In addition to that, you know, we found like a diary or a a box of schoolwork. And that box of schoolwork always stuck with me because... One, it was stories of this little girl, like, wanting to run away. You know, stories I feel like we all kind of wrote or wanted to write when we were kids in the 90s with, like, boxcar children. We had a real, like, orphan thing going on where we, like, (laughs) wanted, I don't know what it was, but, you know, we had this desire to strike out on our own um, in ways that feel related to what we're talking about today somehow. But she had you know, all these drawings in there. And it just struck me because I was like, okay, this is a really important thing that was just left here. And then you go around, you open the closet. It's full of, I mean, it's full of coats. And it's not like we were the first ones in there, you know, it was like trashed in there and spray paint, but there were still like plates on the table. And there were still, there was still a light on in the basement, which was always so strange. Um, But it had been abandoned for at least a couple years. And it, it just still had this entire family's life there. And so you have to wonder what happened to them, that they just up and left all of these things in this house that was theirs. And it's one of those stories, like the imagination that you're talking about gets going and it like allows you to create a narrative that is probably coming from you, right? It's something that you're making up. So it has something to do with you and your psyche and your emotions um, projected onto this place. But at the same time, you're actually getting to know real people that, you know, I used to carry around photos in my car that I found of people. And it's just so, you know, in the 80s, right? They were mostly pictures from the 80s of just these just random people, these like snapshots of a moment in time that we will never understand and yet become like, I don't know, they become like these artifacts that you can, that I don't know, I, I'm not sure where I'm going with it. But it, yeah, it just feels like, It's like an experience of getting close to people even though you don't know them and to like feel things for people that you will never meet, which is, you know, a strange thing and a strange part of imagination. But how wonderful that you have a practice of practicing empathy. Mm. That's what you're doing. Again, this is just another layer to this imagination as healer. I totally understand every single shred of what you just said. And in fact, I don't find it to be strange at all. I find it to be deeply compelling, incredibly vulnerable, very moving. And I think a lot of people could learn a little something from what you've just said. This this is a this is a practice of empathy. We are and again, like I'm not sure how I feel about astrology. I just experience it. I don't know if I believe it, but I also have four planets in Scorpio and my sun sign is in Scorpio. So I'm 
always interested in diving into the real meat of things, not just the Mm -hmm. potatoes, but really diving down into what is going on here. And I think that's part of my obsession with these places for sure. But when it comes to the people who used to exist in these places, absolutely 100%, you nailed it. There is a, a wistful, compassionate feeling of empathy that goes hand in hand with discovering these pieces of people's lives who we don't know and we don't know the story and we probably never will. But just the very idea of practicing empathy, even if it's in an imaginary space, I think it is a template for something that I can then take into real life. And if I'm in a situation where I see an injustice happening, making sure that I speak up, if I see somebody who is hurting or crying in a coffee shop, ensuring that I don't just let that moment go by, but I do the human thing and I go human for a second and I check in with the person because they are a stranger and these are strangers we're talking about too. And so the practice of doing that, I think, is actually incredibly revolutionary and really beautiful. And I think a lot of people could benefit from that kind of practice, especially now. I've said it ad nauseum at this point, but we are in a precarious moment. And if we are unable to listen to each other and to see each other, even the people we disagree with in the highest capacities, the ones who would rather see us eradicated from the planet, I'm not interested in fighting fire with fire. I'm interested in fighting fire with a mirror. And mm-hmm. that that is that is how I feel in my in the deepest core of who I am. And I, you know, there there was this abandoned house that was attached to abandoned an abandoned motel in Saugerties, New York. And it's episode 8 from season 1 and it's it's an Alfred Hitchcock fantasy that really is sort of like a an ode to Psycho and the world of Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. But there happened to be this attached house to the property. And while I was entering it, you know, I was going into this whole Norman Bates's mom fantasy. And the second I walked into that house, uh, I looked up at the, the front door as I was opening it, and there was a giant sticker on it. And I'm paraphrasing, I'd have to go find the photograph, but it basically said, stop illegals stop illegal Mm -hmm. immigration. Mm -hmm. And I was so struck by it. And I had this immediate desire to judge the person who I couldn't even see and be like, oh, what fucking asshole lived here? Oh, you, you xenophobist, like you isolationist asshole, you know, you Trump Mm -hmm. sheet, like on and on in my head. And then I actually went into the house and I went into one of the bedrooms and it was a child's bedroom and the walls were covered in purple. There were toys on the floor. There were crayons on the floor And I just remember hearing this very ghostly melody of sweet child of mine sort of floating down the hallways of this building. Obviously, this is coming out of my imagination. And as you Mm -hmm. said, is probably built somewhere in my psyche. But it gave me a moment of pause to remember no matter what these people believed or didn't believe, there was a human life that existed in this space. And then I went into the second bedroom the bedroom that likely belongs to the adult in the house. And I found all of these pay stubs that were minuscule amounts of money. This was a person who was struggling financially in ways that I cannot describe, like four times below the national poverty average, Mm. just based on the numbers that I was seeing on these pay stubs. And then I Googled this person's name. And this person had been arrested 
time after time for possession of drugs, possession of firearms, failure to pay child support, failure to show up to court. This was a person who was deeply, deeply hurting. Now, I'm not making excuses for their behavior. I'm not asking for people to just forgive them for being or acting shittily, but I did leave that experience thinking to myself, wow, I'm very quick to judge. And who am I? I don't know these people. All I know is this was a a group of people. I don't even know how many of them there were, but based on the evidence that I discovered in this place, they were struggling and it is exceedingly likely that they didn't feel seen and they didn't feel heard. And so they resorted to things like putting stickers on their front doors that said things like stop illegal immigration because someone who has more power than they did tricked them into thinking that that was the solution. And it's not the solution. And on my end of the spectrum, it is certainly not the solution to judge them and to shut them out. That's the problem we're in right now. People on both sides of the aisle are so quick to shut each other down. And I do believe that, you know, one side, quote unquote, does it less than the other. Mm. But who cares? How are we ever going to find the solutions we are looking for if we can't see each other? And so that was just one example of many. And and I think <laughs> I agree. It goes back to what you're saying, and I'll shut up. This is a practice of empathy, and it is inspired by our imaginations just trying to fill in the gaps and put the pieces together, sort of like an investigative journalist. Absolutely. And I mean, everything you're saying totally resonates with both me and I think our show at large and just the desire to not only see someone's humanity um, despite, you know, all odds, but to also realize who the real enemy is, right? Enemy, quote unquote. And mm-hmm. it is not the person who has been basically propagandized into having a scapegoat to blame so that they don't feel the need to revolt against the actual causes of their horrible conditions and situations and life. And so I think to find camaraderie like that and say, oh, like this belief is abhorrent, but I come in here and I see a life. I see that you have loved. I see that you have cried. I see that you have done what you can despite probably, you know, probably harming others, but others have been harmed there, right? So it's like, this is a real enchanted place that teaches you so much about how close we are. This is something I think about a lot. Like, it, it breaks my heart a lot, like, because I, I, I keep people in my life who have views that I, you know, I find offensive or whatever you mm-hmm. whatever word you want to use um but i'm not i personally feel that trying to work through and trying to love and show um each other our humanity tends to to help a little bit more than than me you know i mean everybody's welcome to do what they think is right but then cutting somebody out or deciding to label them as all bad um and I think that 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 ability to find solidarity and try to redirect 
our anger and our hatred, because I think that there's power in those things. But I think that we get distracted because the media tells us who our villains are Mm -hmm. and they tell us who our villains are so that we don't look at them. Right. So we don't say, oh, you're making millions of dollars off of making my beloved aunt hate me. Yes. Like she never did before. And like I have this whole life of experience with her and ephemera and I have these beautiful memories when she was so kind and then suddenly things change and you're like what's how do we get out of this like I know it's a it feels like a war and I know that I do not downplay the fact that there is a good chance that a lot of these people's minds aren't going to be changed by empathy I don't think it's naive but I think that finding a way to to continue to see people as human is the only way that we don't like completely eat each other Mm -hmm. to death. I mean, it's so vile and, and terrifying out there. But when you can pause and redirect that anger to people who are actually benefiting by like ruining our relationships and our lives and like turning the very people we love against us because they're afraid because they've been made to feel that illegals are the problem and the reason that they're not making enough money and then the reason that they have to turn to drugs because their lives are just so painful right it's like we have to take these moments of empathy that we can find in abandoned buildings that we can find in so many places and use that to fuel a different kind of revolution that includes you know our own side being able to work together despite small differences and disagreements um, and continuing to find empathy with our own people, as well as those who actually have more in common with us than billionaires or media moguls or people who are able to to take from us at will and who have that real power, not those that they've created and turned into scapegoats. I mean, that, all of that, exactly. And, you know, it's like, I'm not excusing personal accountability here. And I don't think that's what we're doing at all. But I am saying, I wore a Joe Biden shirt for months after he won. And it dawned on me one day, I was like, wait a minute, I don't even like this guy. Why am I wearing this shirt? I mean, yeah, it makes my chest look big and that's cute. But like, I actually don't even like him that much. What am I doing this for? What is my intention for wearing this shirt? Who is this for? Who is this for? It's the same thing as my neighbor across the street who's waving his Let's Go Brandon flag. This is the same fucking shit. So who am I? And also, on top of all of that, have I not just spent three years exploring abandoned spaces and reconciling with my own bullshit? Did I not come up with the list of people who I owed amends to for my eighth and ninth step while wandering through these spaces, who the fuck do I think I am? I I am not better than anybody else. And yeah, maybe my views aren't as radical and filled with violence and hate, but I'm still a person who makes mistakes on the daily. And so I agree with you. The common ground is there. It just is going to take a level of persistence. And I am so distraught at how easy it is for people to dismiss nuance these days. Yeah. You know, we've had conversations on the podcast about this very thing. And it, it does go back to just 
how do we find solidarity when we have no space to make mistakes, when we've created a culture where we're always on the defensive, where we're always afraid of saying the wrong thing? We should be careful in language, obviously. But, I mean, what are we going to do here? Like, you guys, we got, like, we have to reimagine this whole project of of improving the conditions of America. We have got to just... Yeah, we've got to. I don't know. I don't even have words for it, but we've just got to find a way back to each other. And I think like what you said, it's about empathy and it's about understanding that not all people come from the exact situation that you come from and people's lives take very different paths and those paths and those experiences are going to color everything about their perspective. Like we can't on one hand be so into therapy and self-improvement and mental health without also reckoning with the fact that a it's hard for people to access that support b a lot of people don't have anyone in their lives who are going to encourage them to change their minds or encourage them to get the kind of help that might sort of change their behavior you know we're not going to like bully anyone into changing unfortunately and if they if they do change with this sort of pressure which i think can be good because i think things need to change at all you know no matter what but there needs to be a counterweight of understanding and invitation and a path back you know if we're going to hold people accountable we have to give a path back uh, maybe not in all cases, if someone is a, is dangerous or harmful to the community, which I know harm has many definitions, but there just has to be a way back, I think. Well, and I think it's exactly what we were talking about earlier. Find the empathy. You're asking for solutions, but you're not providing a template for what you want to begin with. All it ends up being is a screaming match. Yeah. So... I would love to just hear, since we've gotten real deep with it, since we've really kind of unpacked all of this, what is the coolest, wildest abandoned place you've ever been to? What What is the memory that just makes your heart just sing? Mm. Uh, so many. You know, um, the one that always sticks out for me, there, <laughs> there was, there is this abandoned house very close to where I live here in the Hudson Valley. And when I discovered it, it was one of those moments where you don't mean to find it, but you find it. And I thought I knew what it was. It was It's a four-story, beautiful blue abandoned house, um, which is uh, subsequently the subject of episode 11 of season one of Abandoned. And I can give you a little backstory. This house was on the property of what was once also, this is a separate drive-in movie theater that was very popular in the 50s and 60s and I think demolished by the 70s. And so there's this giant field that still exists and you know it's covered in in weeds and it's, it's, it's enormously just overgrown now. But at the front of the property was this house. And when I got to the house, there was this big old marquee that was leaning up against this uh, sort of pile of shopping carts. And it had, it said Greta Turnberg on it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like somebody likes Greta Turnberg. Very cool. And then I forgot about it as I was wandering around to the back. And I looked up and on the back of the house, somebody in giant letters, huge, beautiful, 
red, yellow, and orange letters had painted the phrase panic like the house is on fire on the back of this house. Enormous. And they had, out of huge wood cutouts, attached these huge painted flames coming out of the windows of the house. So this place looked like it was actually, you know, cartoonishly on fire. And I read that phrase and it struck me so deeply. And at first I was like, what is this 80s song lyric I've never <laughs> heard before? So I Googled because I, I was I was convinced. I was like, this is like an ACDC lyric or something. And I Googled it. And the first video that popped up was a video of Greta Turnberg talking to the World Economic Forum. And she says, I want you to panic like the house is on fire. Damn, badass. <laughs> oh, it was. And well, the story gets even better. So. I was so struck by it. And, you know, I think about all we, we, you mentioned earlier, all of the graffiti that we see in these places. I think it's very easy for people to call graffiti activism. Mm-hmm. I think it's very challenging for that to actually be true. And to me, this artist who I wound up finding the person who did this, because they, this is the other thing, they didn't tag themselves. There was no tag. The tag was the style of the font of the the message on the back of the house and this is a this is a massive message this is a huge painting i don't know how they accomplished it without getting caught but i i wrote the story i put it on the blog i wrote the podcast episode i produced it released it it's my favorite episode i've released by far and about three months later an account on instagram liked the post about the episode and i was like oh interesting and i I, I clicked the the person's profile and it was the artist. Whoa. And they had a whole feed of all of these different, very intricate and uh, grotesque pieces of graffiti activism. And so I messaged them and all I said was, is this yours? And I sent them a picture of the house and all they wrote back was a smiley face. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and it was such a moment for me because after that, I and I they didn't I don't think they really understood that there was this podcast episode that had created this whole narrative about who this person was who had done this extraordinary thing on this building. And so I sent them the episode and they wrote back to me like 45 minutes later and they said the most beautiful thing. They said, it's so nice. First, they thanked me and said really lovely things about the episode. And they said, it's so nice to see that it wasn't just another, um, and I had never heard this term, bando porn. And having that connection with somebody who really appreciated my own interpretation of these spaces mm-hmm. was such a beautiful moment for me because there was this like, moment of distant respect. I have no idea who this person is. They're not interested in revealing their identity for obvious reasons. And I had even invited them to do an interview and they almost agreed to it and then they backed out and I totally get it because that's their safety. But it was such a lovely thing to have the respect of someone whose work had stuck with me so deeply and in such a resonant way. And so that I think is probably my favorite just because the ripple effect of how it started and where it ended up was really, really fantastic and, and, and made me feel so proud of our community. You know, there's so many amazing people in this space. And I I had an interview a couple months ago on a different podcast about abandoned spaces. And one of the topics that came up was like, in community fighting and like people like and I just was like who cares stop just stop like 
why is there always have to be a fight no matter where we go? What I love about this community is that there's so many originals floating through these spaces and interpreting them in so many beautiful, I'm going to get choked up here, interpreting them in so many beautiful ways. And why can't that be the focus? Like, why are we why are we becoming territorial over places that we don't own? Why, you know, and I get it, like, there's safety clauses, and people are protective, and I understand that. But to me, what's worth celebrating are the people who are interpreting these spaces in the most glorious, innovative ways possible. And that's why that space is probably my favorite. Blake, this has been just a conversation that I did not expect. Not that I didn't expect great things from you, but I didn't know what direction we were going to take. And I feel like this has been really enlightening and um, uplifting and a heartful thing. And it's sure made me want to go explore some fucking abandoned buildings. So I know (laughs) that you and I are going to do this together one day. I will force you to promise me now on the podcast. I solemnly swear on my mother's grave, (laughs) you have created a space that is so welcoming and safe. And I'm just always grateful, as I mentioned earlier, any opportunity I get to be myself resolutely 100% is an opportunity that I'm grateful for. So thank you so much for the work that you do for this show that you have created and for the people you're inspiring to kind of look outside the box a little bit. It's it's really magical and um, we're lucky that you exist in this space. So thank you. God, thank you. <laughs> Nobody's said anything like that to me in a while. Um, no, thank <laughs> you. I, I feel the same way about you. I mean, interviews, you never know how they're going to feel or how they're going to go. But this felt like it just felt like you're my oldest friend. <laughs> <You> <laughs> this is, um, yeah. So and thank you for what you do on your podcast. I just highly, highly recommend if you like our show, you're going to love this show. It's not just it's a it's a whole experience. It's an immersive time. And if you can explore an abandoned building yourself, if you're you know, and I guess we should say uh, American Hysteria does not condone anyone going into an abandoned building. Um, <laughs> so you can safely do it <laughs> with Blake's podcast and um yeah it's it's always nice to have empathetic people creating shows like yours and bringing people in to the conversation and into this very special world that they otherwise might not ever choose to access so thank you so much again for coming on and for everything that you do it's been an absolute fucking treat thank you this was American Hysteria Make sure you listen to All American Ruins wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head to allamericanruins.com and follow at allamericanruins on Instagram. If you want to get early ad-free episodes of our show, head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You'll also get bonus content, including our talk show, Hysteria Home Companion, where producer Miranda and I discuss a variety of stories connected to each topic, teach you how the show is made, and share more personal stories. We just released an episode that talks all about the classic urban legend, The Vanishing Hitchhiker, and I tell my tales from the road and get pretty vulnerable about it. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria, and you'll know that you're supporting our show. 
Another way to support our show is to leave us a five-star review on the app of your choosing. It's a small thing that you can do that really makes a difference for us. This episode has sound design by Clear Camo Studios, was edited and produced by Miranda Zickler, and I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great week.